inerrant word. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised. Even though he was a Greek, this matter arose because we, some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, circumcised was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the reading of God's word. morning. Let's uh, pause and pray for a moment. Your promise is that when your word is preached, Lord, your voice will be heard. So we pray that I would, it would be your word that I'm preaching, that I would speak your truth and that we would hear from you and trust what we hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. This fall, we are studying the New Testament book of Galatians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul sent to a group of churches that he and his colleagues had started in a region called Galatia, which today would have been located within the borders of the nation of Turkey. 
And last week we saw uh, where the apostle essentially began his letter by declaring the reason why he wrote it. He, he wrote this letter to defend the gospel. That was his purpose. He just wanted to defend the gospel. And apparently what happened is after Paul and, and his ministry team had left Galatia, some other preachers had shown up at those churches and, and they were teaching a very different message about God than the one that Paul had given the people. So the reason he, he's writing this letter, he says at the very beginning, is just to explain to the people why those other teachers were wrong and then to call the churches back to the message of the gospel. Now, let me ask you, if someone starts their letter that way, they, they start by saying, I am writing this to defend the gospel, what would you expect them to talk about next in their letter? I mean, I've, I might expect, what, a lesson on theology, maybe a discussion of church doctrine. You know, at the very least, I'd expect them to talk about Jesus, right? But isn't, isn't this weird? After beginning his letter by, by stating his purpose, this is to defend the gospel, Paul then launches into this long, rambling narrative. I mean, just this, this sort of uh, meandering personal travelogue. You know, I used to live over here, and then something happened, and then I moved to this other place, and then later I moved somewhere else, and then after a certain number of years, I visited a certain city, and these are the guys I met. Then a number of years later, I, had, I took another trip to that city. These are the friends who went met with me. These are the people. It just, you know, what's going on here? Just rambling like this. I don't mean to be irreverent, all right, but just to be honest, the first time I read Galatians, this, this portion of the book just seemed boring to me. It's kind of like, focus, Paul, focus, please, you're supposed to talk about the gospel. Why, why this long rambling? Well, you know, it's nice that you took these trips, but why, why do we have to hear this, right? But that's the way I felt at first. But listen, the more I've studied Galatians and the, and the more I've looked at this part of it, I, I am increasingly convinced this portion of this letter is one of the most important parts of the whole book, and I'll tell you why. Because in this passage, the Apostle Paul is answering what could be one, uh, one of the most important questions we could ever ask. And so let's look at this. I want, there are three thoughts I want to touch on. First, I want to talk about the question we need to be asking, all right, the question. Then secondly, the answer that God gives to that question. And then thirdly, why any of this matters, all right? So we'll, we'll start with the, the question that we need to ask is this. How can we know the truth about God? I mean, how, what are we supposed to believe about God? How does God want us to be living? How, what, what, what is the, how can we know the truth? And that's, this is the question that those ancient Christian men and women in Galatia were grappling with be, because, well, listen, here's, here was the, the deal. The Galatian, the Galatian Christians, for the most part, almost entirely, were men and women who had come from a Gentile background. They, they were not Jewish. They didn't grow up with the scriptures. They, they'd grown up in a very pagan society. They grew up their whole life worshiping idols. And this man, Paul, had come to their cities and had told them that the idols they had been worshiping were not real. These were not really gods at all. But he told them 
There is a real God. There is a true God. The God of Israel, he said, is the one true God who is the creator of heaven and earth. And he told them that this one true God had promised his people Israel that someday he would send the Savior, the the promised Messiah, who would bring uh, forgiveness of sin, would, would bring peace with God, would bring blessing from heaven, would bring God's kingdom to this earth. He told them that. And then he told them that this Messiah had already come. His name was Jesus. He was born among us. He lived in this world. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave. And Paul told them that that if they, the people of Galatia, if they would very simply just turn from their sin and place their trust in Jesus, even though they were not Israelites, they, Gentiles, would be accepted by the God of Israel into his people, adopted into his family. They would become sons and daughters of the living God. That's what Paul told them. If they would just, by faith alone, turn to Christ, they would be received. They heard that message. They believed it. And when they believed it, their hearts were filled with joy. Then Paul had to move on. These other preachers came in, and they basically said, not so fast. Time out. They said, listen, it's true Jesus is the Messiah. It's true that you Gentiles are invited to come to him for salvation. But listen, you cannot come to Jesus through faith alone. It's going to take a lot more than that. They said, listen, you guys are pagans, you're idolaters, you're Gentiles. If you expect the God of Israel to accept you into his people, you got some work to do. If you come to the Messiah, listen, you, you better you better kind of improve yourselves. Men need to be circumcised. Families, start cooking kosher. Everyone, follow the, the traditional calendar. Practice our traditional custom. In, in other words, there was a, there's a slight difference between what Paul taught and they taught, and yet it is enormous. You see, like just like Paul, these other teachers said salvation is found in Jesus, but they said you cannot come to Jesus through faith alone. You got to do something to fix yourself. Imagine if that had been the message you heard. If you're like me, think about how messed up you are. What if the message had been you can come to him, but you better do something to fix yourself? That's what these other people told them. And see, this was their dile- this is a, an honest dilemma they had. They had two groups of teachers. They had Paul and his colleagues over here saying one thing. They had these other guys saying another thing. And as far as we can tell, both groups were very nice. Big smiles on their faces, very sincere about what they believed. Both of them quoting from the Bible. So here's their question. How do we know the truth? How can we know the truth about God? Now listen, I don't know if you go around asking that question, but that's one we have to deal with, isn't it? I mean, in our world, one preacher says this, another preacher says that. One ter- church teaches this thing, another church teaches that. We got, we've got all these religious authorities telling us different things. And someone says, well, that's why I don't listen to religious authorities. I don't listen to any of them. I just follow my heart. I do whatever my heart tells me. Okay, let me ask you a question. How do you know your heart's telling you the truth? Please tell me you're more self-aware than that. Hasn't your heart ever told you something wrong? Mine has. 
So no matter what you do, you can't get away from this question. How do we know the truth, the truth about God? And I, would you agree with me? That's, that's one of the most important questions you could ever ask. Because the Bible says some, the day is coming when everyone in this world who's ever lived will by themselves stand before the creator and they will be judged. And on that day, you know, all these questions, have I believed the right things about God? Did I teach my children the right things about God? Have I worshiped God the way I'm supposed to? Have, have I lived the way he wanted me to? I don't want to wait until that day. You know, to know what's going to be on the test. How do we know the truth about God? So this is, this is the question. Now, second point, the answer. The answer God gives to that question is, you ready? Apostles. Apostles. Stay with me, all right? Let me explain. In his teaching, Jesus again and again affirmed the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. I mean, for example, in, in, uh, in Mark chapter 7, he referred to the Old Testament, and he, you know what he called it? The Word of God. Matthew 22, he quotes a verse from the Old Testament, and he said this, this was spoken to you by God. It was written by Moses. He says it was spoken by God. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said this, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law, the Old Testament writing. So Jesus affirmed the reliability, the authority of the Old Testament, but he also indicated that with his arrival in the world, everything was different now. And so we would, have to, we would have to read certain parts of the Old Testament differently. For example, in the Old Testament, you find all these uh, laws that have to do with being uh, ritually clean and acceptable, that have to do with what you eat, what you wear, things like that. Jesus, Mark chapter 7, he declared all foods clean. He basically said, you know, you have to read those differently now. Those don't apply. Or another example, in the Old Testament, there's all these you would call them civil laws that governed the way that they were supposed to set up the, their government in, in, uh, in ancient Israel, uh, what the punishment for certain crimes would be. Uh, in in uh, Matthew 22, when Jesus said, give to, Caesar's, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he was basically saying, don't try to set up an Old Testament theocracy anymore. Just submit to whatever government you're under. Uh, so he was changing the civil laws. In, in John chapter 4, you know, they had all these Old Testament rules about coming to the temple and offering sacrifices. And you know what Jesus said in John 4? He said, the time is coming and now has come when you will no longer worship in Jerusalem at the temple. For the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. So this must have been so baffling to people in the first century. Here's this, here's this, this Messiah who's saying, you can trust the Old Testament. This is the word of God. But there are parts of it you read differently. He always affirmed the moral laws. Don't lie, don't steal, honor your parents, be sexually pure. But these civil laws, these ceremonial laws, these laws of cleanliness, he said, you read those differently now. And can you imagine? Can you imagine all the questions they had? Well, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to make sense of, of the Old Testament? And to answer those questions, you know what Jesus did not do? He did not write a book. He didn't give them, all right, here's the book that will tell you how to do it. He didn't. To answer those questions, 
Jesus gave us apostles. Now, what, what is that? In the Greek word from which we get apostle just means one who has been sent. And there, there are a couple of places in the New Testament where you find the word apostle. You can tell by the context. It just basically means somebody who's a missionary. However, most of the places in the New Testament when you read apostle, you almost want to put a capital A on it. It's talking about this official position in the early church. Uh, like it says in, in Mark 3, 14, Jesus appointed 12, designating them apostles. What were these apostles? Well, um, the apostles were a select group of individuals who had been called and appointed by Jesus Christ himself and given authority to play a unique, unrepeatable role in the development of the church. So when, when Jesus appointed them apostles, he, he gave them authority. He basically gave them the same authority that he had. For, for example, in, in Matthew 10, verse 40, this is what he said to the apostles. He said to those guys, whoever receives you, receives me. It was like saying, you are my official representatives. Matthew 19, he, he said to them, what in the world does this mean? He said, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Whoa. At the very least, it, he's saying, I am giving you authority over my covenant people. So Jesus gave these apostles authority, and he also endowed them with ability through the Holy Spirit. He, he, he promised them an, an empowerment. We all, all believers have the Spirit, but he promised them a unique empowering from the Holy Spirit so that as they formed the church, they would know exactly what to teach us about God. He said to the apostles in John 14, 26, he said, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you, you apostles, all things, and will remind you of everything I've said to you. He said, he said to them in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. I'm sure there's, there are, is in some sense that we could apply that to every believer, but he said it to the apostles. He's going to lead you into truth so you can teach it to others. So Jesus called, he chose, he appointed this, this group of people. They were given authority from Christ and ability through the Holy Spirit to tell us the truth about God, to help us know how to read the Old Testament and understand the gospel and who Jesus is, what God is looking for in, in our life. And so this is why, if you ever read the New Testament, early believers held the apostles in incredibly high esteem. This is why, for example, in Acts chapter 2, we read that the early Christians, it says, devoted themselves not to Bible study, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 1 Thessalonians 2 says that when they, when they received teaching from the apostles, it says, quote, they received it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. This is why um, the apostle Peter, 2 Peter 3, he referred to the writings of Paul as scripture. This is the, he wrote it, it's scripture, same as the Old Testament. This is why the apostle John, 1 John chapter 4, he, he's, he's talking about himself and the other apostles. He says, we are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. They, they, they were held in such high esteem. And if you ever read the book of Revelation, man, that's a crazy book, right? But 
here's this symbol. You get to the very end. The new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, this beautiful city where God dwells. It's built on 12 foundations. And what's written on the foundations of the new Jerusalem, the city of God? The names of the apostles. It's founded on them. So to answer all these questions, how do we know the truth about God? Jesus, here's what Jesus would say. He would say, look to the writings of the Old Testament as they are interpreted through the writings of the New Testament. Look to the prophets, old Hebrew prophets, explained to you by the the New Testament apostles. In other words, he would say, you listen to the apostles. They'll tell you the truth. Now, the reason for this long, rambling narrative from Paul that gets us all bored and gets us confused He's, he's, he's just wanting to show the Galatian uh, uh, Christians that he is an apostle. In fact, if you remember last week, we read, we read the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, and that's the way he started the book. He said, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He just started saying, guys, I am an apostle. And then in this passage, he's claiming the same kind of supernatural revelation, the same kind of empowerment, the same kind of authoritative commissioning that the other apostles had. He says, for example, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. What a claim. Similarly, verse 15 and 16 of of chapter 1, God who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the gospels. So he's he's helping them sort out. They've got all these different voices. Paul is saying one thing. These others are saying something else. What are we supposed to do? Paul says, I'm an apostle. Listen to me. Now, What question comes to mind when somebody stands up and says, I'm an apostle? It's like, hey, how do we know? Prove it, right? And so this whole narrative here is designed to prove it. And here's what intrigues me. Not merely the way Paul proves that he's an apostle. The way he doesn't prove that he's an apostle. Let me explain. Um, In the book of Acts, you ever read Acts? In the book of Acts, you read that that, that Paul, or God working through Paul, Paul performed some amazing miracles, healings, casting out demons, signs, and wonders. Notice, he doesn't point to his miracles as proof that he's an apostle. Why? Because the Bible tells us sometimes you run into people who can do, or apparently can do, signs and wonders, and yet they're not teaching you the truth. He doesn't point to the miracles. You also read in the New Testament that the apostle Paul made uh, lots of incredible personal sacrifices for the sake of, of his ministry. I mean, he, he left everything behind. He traveled the world. He was arrested. He was beaten. He's thrown into jail. Incredible sacrifice for the sake of his, of his message. But notice, he doesn't point to his sacrifice as proof that he's a, an apostle. Why? Because sometimes you'll run into people who have made incredible personal sacrifices for belief systems that are not true. The the 9-11 hijackers would be an example of that. What sacrifice they made. Their beliefs weren't true. So he doesn't point to his miracles, doesn't point to his sacrifice. He also doesn't point to how nice he was. Now, um, 
When you read Paul's writings, you get the impression that this is a man who sincerely loved, he just loved the people he was writing to. One of the book's uh, letters to the Thessalonians, Paul says, guys, I love you like a mother loves her own children. I love you like a mother loves her kids. So he's, he's a very nice man. He doesn't talk about how nice he was. And you know why? Because you always meet people who are very, very nice, genuinely nice, but they're not necessarily telling you the truth. So how does he prove that he's an apostle? Uh, without getting bogged down in all the names and places and dates, essentially this is his argument. He's saying, I had this radical conversion experience. I hated Jesus. I come to know him. And I never got a chance to go to Bible school. I mean, I never, I never got instructed by anyone. I was out in Arabia. I was different places. But Jesus himself was appearing to me. And he himself was giving me this revelation, explaining the gospel to me. Right? That's, a big, that's another big claim. So basically he was saying, listen, I, I can give you the dates. I can give you all the facts. I have an alibi. I can prove I never got any human instruction. So he would say, that means... What I'm teaching to you, either I made it up out of my imagination or Jesus really gave it to me. And here's how I can prove Jesus really gave it to me. Because when I finally, after years of preaching this gospel, I finally got a chance to go to Jerusalem and sit down with the other apostles who had been with Jesus in his lifetime and just compare notes with them. Show them what I'm teaching. They show me what they're teaching. Guess what? We found out we're teaching exactly the same thing, something no one had ever heard before. So that, he said, that's my proof. How you know I'm an apostle? He said, because the other apostles said I am. And that's what he's saying here, starting at the end of verse 6, chapter 2. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been uh, to, the, to the circumcised for God who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, the Jews. He was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's another name for Peter. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and my colleague Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, and they recognized the grace given to me. So he said, here's how you know I'm an apostle. Here's how you know not to listen to these guys who are telling you you have to somehow fix yourself before you come to Jesus and you're not good enough and, and faith alone in Christ won't save you. Here's how you know they're wrong and I'm right. I'm an apostle. So, back to 2017. How do we know the truth about God? Um, the simple answer is to say, to read the Bible. That's not always very satisfying. The more nuanced answer would be, look to the words of the apostles, the New Testament, as they explain to you the words of the prophets, the Old Testament, and you'll know the truth. It's interesting, you, the apostles, the prophets, the New Testament, the Old Testament, Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, as if to say to us, guys, the church, the truth of God is built on the Bible. That's how you know the truth. Now, I realize this is kind of a technical 
message, isn't it? A technical passage, and you might be thinking, all right, get it over with, Pastor. This has nothing to do with my life. What in the world does this have to do with me? Well, listen, that, that's my final point. Why does this matter to us? Um, and I'll tell you why. Because we need the gospel. You need the gospel. I need the gospel. We need to hear that we can be forgiven and accepted by God without fixing ourselves just through Jesus. And here's the point. If you lose the authority of apostolic teaching, you lose the authority of Scripture, you're going to lose the gospel. You will lose it. Let, let, let me explain. The temptation every generation of, of believers has faced, every generation, is this temptation, rather than just kind of sitting under the authority of Scripture, to find ways to place ourselves over Scripture as its authority. We all face that. And in our day, I think, I think here's a very common way. If you ever, if you, we're often tempted not to throw our Bibles in the trash can, but to go through the Bible and Listen, be honest. There's some stuff in here I don't like. There's some stuff in here I don't understand. You, you ever feel that way? There's some things in here that just, well, that does not seem fair to me, right? The temptation is to kind of go through it and say, well, this part that I like, this is from God. Stuff I don't like, but that was just Paul. This part I do like, <laughs> that's from God. This part I don't like, that's just Peter, his ideas, right? Have you ever been tempted to do that? I have, all right? Here's the problem. If parts of this book are God's word, parts of this word book are just human words, how do you know that the parts that say that your sins are forgiven are from God? In other words, if you, if you and I become the arbiters of which parts of this we submit to and which we don't, this is no longer over us. We are now over this. We have made ourselves the authority. And here's the danger. If you make yourself the authority, there is now no one up there higher than you who can look down and say, you're forgiven. The, the, the first time I, I really understood this uh, was reading not a Christian book. Um, there's a novel by Ian McEwan. Uh, and I don't think he's a Christian man, but it's a great novel called Atonement. And uh, the, this novel is narrated, the voice of the novel, is narrated by an elderly woman who is a very successful author of fiction. She's a novelist. And as you read the book, it finally dawns on you as she's telling you this long story about her family. It finally dawns on you, this woman is a pathological liar. I mean, you can't trust anything she says. She just kind of weaves all these tales. And you know how... Uh, have you ever run into this? There's kind of a philosophy in our day that um, all truth is relative. It's all subjective. There's no absolute truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. We all have to decide what's true, right? For this woman, that's not just the philosophy. That's the way she's lived her life. She's just kind of, she just says whatever she wants and decides that's true, right? And she has become a very, very successful author. The Her problem is, however, when she was a young woman, she did something that she knows was wrong, and it resulted in incredible pain and hurt for people she loves, people in her family. And now as an older woman, she 
desperately needs words of absolution. She needs a God who can tell her she's forgiven, but because she's made herself the authority over truth. There's no one up there higher than her. And so here's the the words at the end of the Book of Atonement. This this, uh, elderly woman is talking. She says, the problem these 59 years has been this. How can a novelist achieve atonement when with her absolute powers of defining outcomes, she also is God? There's no one higher she can appeal to or be reconciled with or, or, or that can forgive her. There's nothing outside her in her imagination. She has set the limits. She has set the terms. And there's no atonement. So if you if you lose the authority of Scripture over you, there's now no one over you who can tell you you're forgiven, you're free. You lose, you lose this, you lose the gospel. And that's, um, I'm wrapping it up here, that's, that's the point Paul is making. I mean, this can seem a little bit arcane, and maybe Paul is one of these guys that just likes to argue theology. You know people like that. They just like to argue with doctrine. And, he, and he's telling you guys, that's not the deal. That's not why I'm doing this. In, in verse 5 of chapter 2, he talks about how he had this big blowout argument with these false teachers. And here's what he says, verse 5. He says, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. He said, we fought with them about our apostolic authority. Why? Because if you lose that authority, the gospel's gone. You no longer have a God who can say, you're mine anymore. So how do we know the truth about God? We look to his word. The words of the apostles as they explain the words of the prophets, the Old Testament, and, and you know the truth. So, if you're still with me, let me close by telling you the truth about God. You want to hear the truth about God? There is a God. He created everything that exists. This God is holy and righteous and just, and he always, always, always punishes sin. And yet, can you believe it? He loves sinners. He loves sinners so much that he, in the person of his son, became one of us, lived in our world, died in the place of all who would trust in him, rose from the grave to give newness of life. And listen to me, if you, through nothing more than faith alone, have simply trusted in Jesus, your life might be an absolute mess right now. But God loves you. God has forgiven you, God has adopted you into his family, and his love for you will never end. And that's the truth. And because this is our authority, I can tell you that. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I know it can feel oppressive when a pastor tells us we need to submit to the authority of Scripture, but your design by placing your word over us is not to oppress us, but so that we have an authoritative word who can tell us that we are forgiven clean and clear through Christ. So let us submit to your word so that your word might speak that to us. In Jesus' name.